This morning, we are going to look at uh, something here in the book of Luke. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. Uh, I'll tell you where we've been so far in our study of the Gospel of Luke up to this point. Uh, we saw last week the first conversation that wasn't revelation in this book. Uh, we saw the conversation between Elizabeth and between Mary. And we're still at Zechariah's house here this morning. Mary has not yet gone back to Joseph. She is still at Zechariah and Elizabeth's place. And she is about to do something for us that I think will be a blessing to you and encouragement to you uh, as, we, as we look here. If you look at Luke chapter 1 with me... Uh, Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 46 through 55. We're going to look at what's called the Magnificat, which is a, a Latin term for magnification. It's, it's Mary's praise song, really. And if you look, just turn one page to your right, you'll watch that this text looks different than all of the text that has gone before it. And in, it'll show up and look different in three other places in Luke chapter 2 as well. You see that as you turn right in your Bible, you'll see three sections in addition to this one that all look like hymns. Uh, so in your Bible, we don't hear a lot from Mary. In fact, this section is the most that you'll hear from Mary throughout the course of the entire Bible. She speaks the most. She writes, a, in a sense, a, a new, your very first New Testament hymn is written by a high schooler. Somebody who has experienced God's work in interrupting her life. It probably has close between 10 to 12 Old Testament allusions. There are all sorts of uh, connections in this song that Mary writes us that look a lot like Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We won't spend a lot of time looking at that today, but just let you know if you flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and look at Luke chapter 1, you'll see a lot of consistency between the stories of these two women who have miraculous births. Uh, so you really learn a lot from these women in the scriptures who write songs magnifying and glorifying God for who he is. But I think as we, as we turn our attention here to Mary's story, uh, we, we need to acknowledge where we are in salvation history. We're on the cusp of the pivot of all of salvation history as Jesus Christ comes into the world. Your entire Old Testament narrative, all the way from Genesis to Malachi, has been on their toes in anticipation of the Christ who is to come. And as the announcement has been made through Gabriel to both Elizabeth and to Mary, what we have here is Mary's first response to all of these things. And as we consider the Christmas season and we consider coming together and singing songs that you know because you practice them every single year, I think it's a good moment for us to pause and to consider the truths that Mary gives for us here in this, in this song. So I want to ask you as we begin, what makes you sing? In fact, I would challenge you that the things that come out of your heart in tune and in words are really connected to the deepest parts of who you are as a person. Christians, you know this, that when these Christmas songs come on during the year, you can pick them out by name, can't you? That you can sing, O Holy Night, and you probably know all 19 verses. You can sing joy to the world and oh come all ye faithful and oh come Emmanuel because they all remind you of the truth of what Christmas is all about, don't they? Amen? That that's a part of the Christian faith is singing and reminding ourselves as a corporate body of who Christ is and what he has come to do. 
The same thing happens at Easter. That I need Christmas songs. I need to be reminded of what God has done to send his son into the world. Just like I have to read Revelation once a year, I need Christmas once a year. I need to be reminded that Jesus has come and I need to read Revelation to know what? He's coming back. Right? I need to reorient my affections and my attention on the things that really matter. And what you're going to see here in Mary's song is that she is going to give you some deep, beautiful, wonderful, powerful theology about God. You weren't sure what Mary knew about God, but at this point, what you're going to find out about this high schooler is that she knows her Bible because she knows her God. All right? Well, let's pray and jump in. Father in heaven, for these few minutes, we pray that you would capture our attention and our affections. In this simple song that is packed with theology about who you are, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to experience you afresh this Christmas season. As we sing these songs together as a church and remind ourselves that Christ has come and Christ is Emmanuel and God with us, I pray that through our study of your word, you would encourage us and affirm us and remind us of your purposes with us. That we wouldn't get discouraged this Christmas season as if you don't see us or you aren't aware, but that we would be bolstered by your tender mercy toward us that we would be encouraged and strengthened, that you have not forgotten any of your promises. So Father, may we present to you hearts and minds that are pleasing to you, that worship together in spirit and in truth. Would you be pleased by the words that we sing and the joy that comes out of our hearts as we remind ourselves of your goodness toward us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 1. Y'all there? Luke 1, Luke 1, 46. You saw what Elizabeth said. Mary showed up in the house and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth blessed Mary and who she is. Blessed is the one who uh, you'll see just up in that previous paragraph. She who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary follows up in response to Elizabeth with this. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, I've already mentioned the change in the way the text looks in your Bible, but essentially this song functions much like an Old Testament psalm does. And Mary begins with something that is very, very common in the Psalms, something that is called a parallelism. She says one thing in two different ways, and essentially she does it so that you might understand what is going on inside of her. The thing that you learn about Mary right from the beginning is that Mary's worship comes from where? Outside or inside? It's from the inside. Worship of God does not start primarily with external deeds. Worship of God does not come primarily because you sing and say true things about God on the screen. That's not necessarily worship. We could get a lot of people together to read stuff off a screen together, right? Worship primarily comes as a posture of the human heart toward God because of who he is. So right from the beginning, we're introduced to Mary's spiritual life. 
If you've ever talked to people who are Christians who may be further ahead of you in the journey, you will recognize that maybe your spiritual life doesn't look like their spiritual life because of how and who they are. You'll say, well, how in the world can you have such peace and such confidence and such uh, serenity in your spiritual life? Don't you see what's happening in the culture? Don't you see what's happening in your family? Don't you see what's happening in your workplace? Don't you see what's happening on the news? And you meet these Christians who are mature and further along in their relationship with God, and you find out that they have an inner core. They have a ballast to their life. You know what ballast is? We're in a, a, a what's it called, boating city. It keeps a, a, a boat stable in the water, secure. Well, how do they get that? They get that because of an inner relationship with God. They get that because of a posture and a conversation that is ongoing in their life. So Mary has just experienced the most significant interruption in all of the scriptures. Amen? She's just found out that she's going to bear the incarnate second person of the Trinity. And what we've learned about Mary up to this point is that she's willing to submit all of her life to what God has for her. And that divine interruption could come with questioning or grumbling or uncertainty. But for Mary, what comes out of the result of that divine interruption is joy, is worship. Now, Christians that are older than me, you figure out how old I am and you go from there. Do you have stories of divine interruptions where God did things that you didn't expect, you didn't understand, but you look back and bless God for? Anyone? Okay, get them up high so the young folks know there are people out there. Thank you. See, a lot of us, when we start our journey with God, we go, we said, just what we said about Mary in the beginning, there was no if in her response to God. She said, God, whatever you want, however you want to do it, however you want to make it happen, God, I will do it. And now we hear something different from Mary. It's complementary to her submission. It's her joy and her magnifying God for who he is. Look at what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, Mary has told us something about herself about her joy in her worship. She's also told us something about God. Did you see the two terms she used for God? One is Lord. It's been used 10 different times up to this point in the book of Luke to speak to the absolute authority and sovereignty of God. God's complete transcendence over all of his creation. So what's the first one? God my what? Lord, sovereign Lord. But number two is it's God my savior. So that in one brief statement in verses 46 and 47, what you have from Mary is that God is both transcendent and God is imminent. God is both high and God is near. God is both distant and holy and righteous and deserves all worship of all people in all places all over this planet. And number two, he knows and he has saved me. In fact, if you want to just take a quick look at these first four or five verses, you'll find that she mentions me or my five different times. So what we're introduced to as Mary begins this story is her personal relationship with God. So that it tells us that God is not just a transcendent, high, and exalted figure, but that God is also near to teenagers. He's near and in relationship 
with his people to give them joy. Is that good news? Isn't that great? So let me talk to you young Christians who are in the room. If you're in your teens, do you know that the God of heaven and earth wants to have a personal relationship with you? Do you know that your relationship with God isn't mediated through your parents or through your friends? But that the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, is willing to come into personal, intimate, loving relationship with you right where you are. What did Mary do to have God interrupt her life? Zero. And God's divine interruption to her has brought her great joy because now she has met her Savior. She has met the one who has now interrupted her life and invited her into the greatest story of all the scriptures. And you can know that God too. Old Christians, amen? amen? Isn't that what we want for the next generation of Christians coming up? What we want for our middle schoolers and our high schoolers that they can know and love and understand and meet the God of heaven and earth. That's what we want. That's our prayer. That's my prayer for my kids and also prayer for your kids, for your grandkids. And that's what we see in the life of Mary. Here she is, a teenager, writing a song. The very first song of the New Testament. Praising God because she knows him. Verse 48. Now she gives you three, four statements, F-O-R, that explain the joy. That explain why her soul magnifies the Lord, her Savior. Verse, one, verse 48 gives you the first one. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. If you want to just make a note, it's that God pays attention. A lot of people feel like God is distant. God's far off. God's not connected. I'm not in the church. God can't see me. God doesn't care what's going on in my life. And what Mary shows us is right from the beginning of her walk into this story of the gospel message. What she says to us is that she finds great joy in her relationship with God because God sees her. You know, the very first encounter in the Bible with the Old Testament pre-incarnate Christ, with the person who's called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, is with a woman named Hagar who's getting ready for her son to die and her life is interrupted by the angel of the Lord coming, saving her and providing for her. He comes to an outsider. He comes to someone who's forgotten, who feels like God doesn't see me and know where I am. And Mary reminds us from the beginning of her psalm that he has looked on me. Now, is Mary accomplished? Is Mary educated? Is Mary significant in her day and time? No, that's what she says next, that she's looked on the humble estate of his servant. Let me remind you, you don't need to be popular. You don't need to be wealthy. You don't need to have a college degree. You don't need to be successful in your field. You don't need to be known by a lot of people on Instagram and Facebook. But you can know God. And Mary says, what explodes out of my heart is that God sees me. Look at your second one. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now her relative just called her blessed, right? Blessed is she who believed the word that the Lord has spoken to her. But here, for the first time in this song, Mary puts the context of her own personal spiritual experience into history. And she uses a term that's a pretty pregnant term, no pun intended, in the book of Luke when she says, from now on. Has something significant happened in Mary's life? 
Have you been following along in the book of Luke? Has something significant happened in Mary's life? Yes. Okay. God in heaven. Luke uses this term from now on. Things are about to be different. Amen? Things are about to be different in Mary's life. Things are about to be different in creation. Things are about to be different in Israel. The Son of God is about to arrive. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. She understands that this moment is not a throwaway moment in her spiritual life. And it's not a throwaway moment in the future generations who will look back on her. She acknowledges that what God is doing in my life in this moment is a part of what God's story both has been and will be. It's a significant moment. So her heart erupts in joy because all generations are going to look back and call her blessed. Number three, see the third one, verse 49? So the first one, verse 48, he's looked on me in the humble estate. Number two in verse 48, all generations will call me blessed because now the pivot of the pivotal time has happened. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Now this is a direct contrast to what we just saw about Mary and her humble estate. Not only is Mary not popular, not significant in her day and time, but her, her national identity too is one of a people who've been subdued by the Greeks and the Romans. And what Mary says next is that though she is in a weak and humble and insignificant position, she doesn't have a God who is that way, does she? She has a God who is mighty. And not only is he strong up there, but he's strong toward me. And he's done great things for me. Let me just give you a couple of places in the Old Testament that talk about the great things God has done. In Job chapter 9, when Job is talking about God and who he is and how he's too hard for Job to understand, Job rattles off these things like God makes the heavens, God makes the stars, God makes the oceans, God makes the mountains. And then Job says this in Job 9 verse 10, that he does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. What does Job understand about God? God is an impressive individual. Psalm 106 talks about the nation of Israel forgetting God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. So Mary invites us into her personal experience of the divine conception of the Son of God and responds with the fact that God has done great things. I, that's kind of an understatement, right? It's kind of an understatement to go, so you're going to send the second person to the Trinity and I'm going to be a part of gestating this individual who now all of the nations of the world will bow the knee to. I'd call that a great thing. Well, that's what she said. He's done great things for me and holy is his name. Now at this point, what Mary is about to do in the song is, is leave her own personal experience. Because we've said this from the beginning of Mary's story, that this is a pretty unrelatable personal experience, isn't it? Nobody else is ever going to have this unique of an unrepeatable experience in all of creation, right? Amen. What Mary does now, though, is not just tell you how she responds in this incredibly unique story, 
how she responds to this incredibly glorious God who is both Lord and Savior and holy and strong. But Mary pivots to the singular promise for all who will read this story. Look at the very next verse. Verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now circle generation because she just talked about generations, right? She just talked about, and you would connect that back up to what she just said. All generations are going to look back and call me blessed. But though you don't have my personal experience of being the mother of the Son of God, what you can have is a repeatable experience as you meet this God. Isn't that good news? See, it's one thing to read the Bible and know things about people who had a relationship with God. It's a whole other thing to actually walk with God. To actually meet and know and speak and commune and converse with the maker of heaven and earth. And if nothing else that we do in this church, can I remind you and encourage you and exhort you and tell you that we believe that you can know God and walk with God. Amen, church? That you can have a personal, intimate, delighted, peace-filled relationship with the maker of heaven and earth. What else do we talk about when we talk about Jesus? But that he can come into your life and you can speak with him and talk with him and walk through your days with him and understand him and experience the forgiveness of sins and the confidence of eternal life. When we talk about the apostolic witness in the New Testament, we have the message that can declare that people's sins are really forgiven. They really can have new life. They really can know God. Amen? Right? So Mary turns and she goes, not only my experience, but let me tell you something. His mercy, now that mercy word, that mercy word, is a New Testament translation of an Old Testament word that often is translated as God's covenant, faithful, loyal love. It's a, it's a term that particularly has to do with relationship with God. Not just God being mighty, not just being strong, but God being in covenant, faithful relationship with his people. And Mary gives you your first promise in the song that his mercy is for those who fear him. What does it mean to fear God? Well, what we've already seen in Mary's story is that Mary has considered herself rightly in light of God, right? She understands that I am now submitted to his word, that what he says, I do. He is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He is high and exalted and worthy of all worship. And the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which means the beginning of my Christian life, and really the, the constant reminding of my Christian life, is that he is God and I am not. I know that's, that's stunning to say, right? But imagine how different your life would be when you have that frustration in your heart about the way your life is going and you would remind yourself that he is God and I am not. How different would our conversations with others be if we had a, a conscious memory of the fact that he is God and I am not? 
I'm not in control of that. I don't oversee the seasons. Remember Ecclesiastes? I'm not in charge of the water cycle. I don't know about how clouds move around the earth. I don't know how one generation goes and another generation comes because he's God and I am not. But what Mary gives us here is this promise that you can know God and step into his covenant, faithful, loving kindness and loyal mercy to you when you begin that relationship with him and you say, God, you're God and I am not. God, you're perfect and I am not. God, you are holy and I am not. God, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know everything that's best for me. I don't understand what's happening in my life. I know there are sins in my heart and my speech that I can't break. And God, you are God and I am not. And what Mary gives us in this promise is that you can step into a relationship with God where you can know him as your heavenly father and you can experience his loyal and faithful and covenant love towards you. Through how many generations? All. So you're telling me, Steve, that we have a message that can introduce people to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth in every single generation? You're telling me this song is still the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Is that what you're saying, church? Yes. Yes. All right. You with me so far? Now, Mary's going to move. And we're going to look at, now the beginning of this is Mary's personal relationship with God. You with me? You see that? You see how what it's like for Mary to talk to God, to sing to God, to speak to God, to know God, to hear, to feel in her chest and in her heart who God is and what he is like and how important and precious God is to her. Now what Mary is going to do is introduce us to culture. She's going to show us God's providential ways, the way God works in the story And commentators note that the shift happens in the verb tense in this song. It's as if Mary's talking about her day today. I rejoice, I magnify, his mercy is for you, it's for here right now. She looks into the future and says, all these generations are going to call me blessed, but it's this experience today. And then she shifts in the song, and it's as if she only looks backward. And the rest of the song is all looking back. I'll prove it to you. Verse 51. And she does this to start in a series of divine reversals. Would you agree when God gets involved with the situation, things change? Okay. Okay, half of you, that's okay. I'll prove it to you. Verse 51. He's shown strength with his arm. Now, she's just talked about God being mighty toward who? Toward her. Now, look at how she speaks about God. He's shown strength with his arm, and he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. What you'll see are three groups of people that are the prototypical enemies of God. The first have to do with the proud. Now, Mary's only already talked about God to her, right? And she said, God has looked upon what kind of estate of his servant. Look back up in the song. A humble estate, right? God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. How does God deal with the proud? You've probably read James chapter 4 before where James says that God opposes the proud but gives gives grace to the humble. And notice where pride lives in Mary's song. That pride lives in the thoughts of the heart. 
This is probably the single greatest sanctification area in my own personal life, is acknowledging how often my heart responds with pride. The longer I am a Christian, the more I recognize in myself that God is opposed to pride in Steve's life. And God has a marvelous way of scattering the places where I have pride and ambition in my own life. Isn't that frustrating? If you've walked with God for any length of time and you get confronted with your pride, it is an ugly, oily, stinky experience. Because when pride comes out of your heart, you recognize how often you are not saying, God, you are God and I am not. You are saying, God, you are God and I'm a pretty good God too. And God says, Mary tells us, he's shown strength with his arm. How easy is it for God to humble a man? I mean, is that hard? Can you go through the Bible and tell me stories of individuals who went toe-to-toe with God and lost? Ever heard of Pharaoh? Ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar? Ever heard of his son with the handwriting on the wall who dies that night? Ever heard, ever heard of Herod? Herod, who at the end of his life, people say, ah, the voice of a God and not a man. God strikes me, falls down, dies of worms. Bad way to go. Ever heard of Haman? And can we go on? That we've got story after story after story in the Old Testament about what God thinks of pride. Same thing with the New Testament. That God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, here's another group of people. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You see how God uses, God uses his arm and he lifts up the humble. But he uses his arm and he brings down kings and rulers. One of the common themes throughout the Old Testament is God raises up kings and God puts kings down. God raises up kings, God puts kings down. God has zero problem. God told Daniel, here's the next future monarchies that are going to come. Assyria, Babylon, Greek, Rome. Does God have any problem raising them up, tearing them down? None. You got generations and hundreds of years of world history where God goes up and down and up and down and up and down, all according to his providential sovereign purpose. And Mary reminds us that he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He gives grace to the humble, to those who don't have it all together, who those who are not significant, who those the world does not see. Does anybody see Mary in her culture right now? Would anybody be aware of what is happening in the life of this teenage girl who's betrothed to Joseph? No one. But what is God doing in humble, insignificant, unseen places? Accomplishing the salvation of the world. God doesn't need the likes. God doesn't need to be popular. Because God takes the values of this world and says, I take them and I bring them down. So that God would get glory and you would see who he is, not who mankind and their values are. Verse 53. We move from, look at your first one. He scattered the proud. He takes thrones and he tears them down. And look at the next one, 53. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, he has sent away empty. These are three groups of people that Luke will deal with in his gospel. And they represent those who consider their life independent of a perspective where God is involved. That the proud, 
the rich, and the political rulers, all have a bent toward living with a independence from God kind of perspective. God doesn't see me. God's got nothing to say about my life. I've got everything under control in my life. I don't need God. He's not important to me. He's the, uh, the, the Bible, the Proverbs says that the haughty God knows from afar. What did Mary just say about God? He has looked on me. What's God say about the proud? They're over there somewhere. They're way over there, way far away from me. So now we see God's provision and God's tenderness toward the needy, don't we? That the rich and the self-satisfied, he sends them away. But those who are hungry, they will be filled with good things. Now, we're at a spot here um, that I've said this before, and I want to just remind you of something, that Mary is carrying Jesus, right? And Mary has just given us a song that talks about her own personal experience with God. And then her song has moved to all of the types of ways in which God has operated in the past. But I want to marry, commentators look at this and it's a verb tense thing, but they can't decide whether or not Mary is looking back or if Mary is looking at accomplished events as if they were already accomplished because of the person that she is carrying. Does that make sense? That if Jesus, the Son of God, is coming into the world, is anything going to stop God's plan? Nothing is going to stop God's plan. He's sending the second person of the Trinity into the world. Is Jesus going to accomplish everything the Father had designed for him to accomplish? Yeah, he is. Is Jesus going to die? Yep. Is Jesus going to rise? Yep. He told the disciples all over the place he's going to rise. Is Jesus going to come back? Yes. Which means ultimately what Jesus says he will do, he will do. What God says Jesus will do, he will do. So is Mary looking back on the historic activity of God, or is Mary saying we are so certain of God's past activity that in this boy he will fulfill all the promises of righting the historical injustices in society, in spiritual pride, and in those who have nothing? I think it's both. Let me just read this to you from Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, listen to this. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That sounds a, a whole lot like Mary's song, doesn't it? That he will bring down those who are uh, opposing themselves. He will bring down the proud. The rich he will scatter away, but he will establish a kingdom without end. Now, Mary has one more movement in this song, still in the past tense, where she looks at historic and future final vindication of God's plan in this boy. But now... She sets her spiritual life not only in the context of others who will know this God, but she reminds us of something very important about this song, is that God is faithful not only to her, God is faithful not only in his providence to bring down all that oppose his plan, but she reminds us of something that God has been faithful to all throughout the Old Testament. It's that God has been faithful to his promises. 
One more place. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel. Now, you read that real quick and you go, yeah, his servant Israel. He's helped his servant Israel. I get that. But who has been the servant in this story so far? Say Mary, right? Mary calls herself, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And now Mary, in the last stanzas of her song, says that God has helped not just me, but God has helped all of his people in what he is doing here in what he is doing in this moment. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his what? Mercy. We've already heard about mercy, haven't we? We've already heard about the fact that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You can know this God. But what Mary is doing by the end of this story is, <clears throat> is contrary to what a lot of us as American Christians do. A lot of us think that the beginning and end of God's plans and purposes are in the fulfillment of his promises to me. God wasn't doing anything before 1977 when I got here. And now that I am here, I am greatly perturbed about the fact that God is not operating on my time schedule, according to my desires, according to my prayers, and according to my plans. And what Mary does in her song is remind us that she is a part of the cloud of witnesses who've been looking forward to what God is going to do in sending the Messiah. And she says, in this moment, I am a part of the anticipation of generations of people who have been hoping in God. Remember the story of Elizabeth? That Elizabeth, after decades of infertility, is introduced to the fact that God sees her, God knows her, and God's plan is still alive. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. There's that covenant, faithful love toward his people that Mary is experiencing, but that God's Old Testament covenant people have experienced for generations. That a Jew, when they would read this, would remember, God hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't abandoned us. That his love is still the same. Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, we've been introduced to key Old Testament figures in Luke's research, haven't we? In the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we were introduced to Malachi. And Malachi's prophecy, in Malachi chapter 4, it said, John the Baptist is coming, the forerunner of the Messiah. And we said, oh my goodness, look at that. God hasn't forgotten to be faithful to his word. 400 years that promise was out there waiting to be fulfilled. And then we were introduced in the story with Mary and her first encounter with Gabriel, that she would now find the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that she is going to bear the one who will sit on David's throne. And we go back a thousand years. And now as Mary writes this song, she takes us 2,000 years back. All the way back to the promises that God has made to Abraham. Where 
Abraham hears from God that in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. That Abraham, you have to wait with a barren wife for the child of promise because you will have a son. And Mary takes her spiritual life and puts it in the context of God's covenant faithfulness to his people for 2,000 years. Now, why does that matter? It matters because you will never understand your spiritual life unless it's in the context of God's historic covenant faithfulness. See, a lot of us, when we come and we look at a story like this, and we go, oh my goodness, look at that. God was faithful to his word. Right? Would you agree that God has been faithful to his promises that he made to Abraham, and he's fulfilling them here in the person of Christ? Amen? Right? Well, then we leave, and here comes Tuesday morning, and we go, I don't know if God's faithful to me. I don't know if God's going to do anything in my life. I don't know. I feel pretty humble and un unimpressive and I still struggle with sin and I'm not that popular and gosh I don't not nobody follows me on Instagram or TikTok and I'm not that not a lot is happening in my life and I would say two things to you one you'll never understand yourself unless you understand worship you never will number two you'll never understand God and who he is unless you understand worship the way Mary does You'll never understand that God is after all of you. The most intimate areas of your life are meant to be his. And he's inviting you into a covenant, faithful, loyal, love relationship with him. And while we say that God is personal and we agree with that, we believe that God is a God of providence where he can raise up and tear down entire political man-made structures, by the end of this story we have to admit too that God is a promise keeper. He does what he says. And unless we understand our own spiritual lives according to the promises that he has made in his word, we will always be holding God to promises that he never made. Therefore, we will never really worship. We'll always be grumpy. We'll sing the songs. We'll clap. Yay, good songs about God. But God's not operating on my timetable. God, I sang all the right songs. I said true things about you and your word. But God, why aren't you dot, dot, dot? Why aren't you coming through on my prayers? Why aren't you giving me the kind of marriage? Why aren't you fulfilling my career ambitions? God, why aren't you keeping my kids healthy? Real life example from the past six days. Well, I got, did God promise that? But if I come to God's word and I take these stories of his faithfulness toward the weak and the humble and the uncertain and the failing, what I begin to discover is that God is consistently faithful to his word to do things through me and in me that are best for me. So then... When I come to church, when I drive in the car and sing with the windows up, when I respond to what God is doing in my life, what happens when I align myself with the people of God who have feared his name throughout all the generations, who have put all of their hope in him, who've met him in the person of his son, I begin to worship God for the right reasons. 
I begin to confess that there are things that I need that I can only uh, have in God. I begin to confess that I love the world a lot more than I ought to. I am friendly with things I shouldn't be friendly with. And I need God's divine invasion into my life to reorient my lusts and my fears and my uncertainties, my sin patterns. And when that happens and I meet God and know that God who forgives me, who redeems me, who's faithful in his kindness to me and his son... Then I come into this place with God's people and what explodes out of my heart is what? Joy. Are you with me so far? Do you see why we need songs? Do you see why Mary writes this and invites us to know and experience God, her Savior? Because by the end, she reminds us all that God has been faithful for thousands of years. God is faithful in her life. And she invites us in to know and to experience this God who will be faithful for all future generations. Let's pray. Father, we need to be reminded of your goodness and kindness toward us. We need songs that shake us out of holding you to promises that you've never made. We need the reminder of the goodness of Jesus Christ. We need the reminder of your kindness. We need the reminder of sins that are forgiven. We need the reminder that you are stronger than the pride that so easily lurks in our hearts. You are stronger than our commitment to our own personal wealth and ambition. That you are stronger than all of these things that vie for our attentions and our affections. Father, we need you. And this Christmas season, we come as humble and desperate people, longing to meet you again. And Father, for situations in this room that feel peculiar and very specific, I pray that you would, in your own way, speak the word of truth into difficult scenarios where we're not sure what you're doing. Would you give us truth to hang on to? Would you remind us that you have not forgotten us and that all you do is because of you have remembered your mercy and your covenant faithfulness to us. That you're kind to us. That you bear with us in love. So Father, bless us as we sing to you, as we give thanks for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.